I'm still waiting for the CD. <laughs> well, I want to bring you greetings from some sister churches. Last weekend, Gordon and I were in uh, Lincoln, Arkansas. Actually, I know they can't hear. That's not my problem. By, by the way, thank God for the people that man the sound booth. You know, these folks really never get any credit, and they're only noticed. Is this not working? I'll do this. Okay, they're only noticed when something goes wrong. Some sister churches from uh, the New Testament Christian Church at Manchester, New Hampshire, from Community Fellowship Church at Stanton, Virginia, and uh, from New Covenant Fellowship at Manassas, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., and from that little church in Lincoln, Arkansas. Now, most of you don't know, but TCF was very uh, involved in the planning of that church at Lincoln, Arkansas. Uh, we've ordained all the elders that are there over the years. We went uh, to the church, did a lot of training. Over the years, we've spoken many times on Sunday. There was a time when TCF elders were rotating, going there and speaking. And that church feels a great debt to Tulsa Christian Fellowship. And we're thankful that uh, we have been able to be a part of that very, very small congregation. They uh, normally run 25 on Sunday. And you just cannot imagine how they were touched by having the planning committee meet in their place. Uh, one of the elders got up Sunday to, to explain who we are and just started weeping that uh, we cared enough to come there. What a blessing. You know, I, I wish there were some way, and I know there's no way it could ever happen, that all of the members of all of the churches who are sister churches throughout the nation could have some kind of a giant rally. <laughs> now, those of us who are leaders get to know each other and encourage each other and disagree, and yet we trust each other. It would be so wonderful if the members of the churches could know each other also. We will in heaven, won't we? But it would be so wonderful if that could happen in this life. Also, I'm glad to see Bud and Darlene, that they survived time in that hedonistic culture of the left coast. So uh, <laughs> we're glad to see you back today. You know, we're living in a time in which there is a growing interest in events of the end times. It's interesting to me to notice that even though the late great planet Earth now is more than 30 years old, it's experiencing a revival of interest. People are discussing it and talking about it. The Left Behind series, of course, has stirred a lot of interest in the end times. Most recently, the History Channel, uh, some of the other channels on television, the supermarket tabloids, they've been stimulating interest in the Mayan calendar and uh, the writings of Nostradamus. 
and some reading and studying about the Mayan calendar have decided that the end of the world is going to happen in the year 2012. Now they decide this because the Mayan calendar ends December 21st, 2012, and so that must be the end of the world. Now I don't know how that really makes sense because more sensible scholars saying, well, the Mayan calendar is no different than the calendar on our wall that ends December 31st. You flip it over and it starts again. But anyway, uh, common sense is not appropriate when you're dealing with things such as this. I don't understand how Nostradamus fits in either because Nostradamus prophecies go all the way to 3797. And so how the world could end in 2012 continues to be a puzzle as we, as we think about these things. Recently, when I was working out, uh, in the background there was a television playing. I wasn't really listening to it, so I didn't absorb exactly what was said. But it seems there was someone who was a combination astronomer and astrologer saying that the constellations are going to be completing a cycle of some sort in the year uh, 2012. Others say uh, that in harmony with all of this is the fact that the next presidential election is 2012. And I don't know how relevant that is unless that might have something to do uh, with the Antichrist. Now here's an interesting thing. Uh, there's going to be a movie released uh, in November, uh, and it's going to be released in 82 theaters all over the world, even Vietnam. The title of the movie is 2012, and it's all about these cataclysmic events. And you can go on the uh, Columbia Pictures website and click 2012, and you can vote who you think will be the world ruler after December 21st, 2012. So I don't know how that fits the president's election, but uh, it certainly uh, is there. Uh, Also, it's interesting that uh, today in the church, there is a growing controversy about the end times. Men such as C. Peter Wagner and others who are advocating a dominion theology say everyone has really had the end times wrong. Uh, close to those are those who believe in the latter rain movement, uh, and I'll not name who those are because it might embarrass you because you're close to some of those, but those that are promoting the bridal paradigm, that we're going to create a perfect church for which Jesus will come and receive this pure bride. Uh, there are others that are saying, no, there's going to be some sort of millennial rapture that doesn't fit any of this, and frankly, Some of the writings that I I find myself reading today find that this this is really an intense debate. Some folks would almost, well, some would, disfellowship you if you do not accept their own end times view. You know, as I find myself increasingly exposed to these things, I hear the echoes of my childhood. Uh, During World War II, We sat listening to sermon after sermon that identified uh, situations in Daniel and situations in the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with specific things that were happening during this worldwide conflagration. Uh, Some of the preachers in this literature saw automobiles. Some saw tanks. Some saw B-17s with machine guns, both in the nose and and in the tail. Uh, 
And of course, everyone was always identifying the Antichrist. The first Antichrist identified during World War II was Mussolini because he was reviving the Roman Empire. Then others, after Hitler began to gain ground, said, no, it's Hitler, because notice, Hitler has developed a religion in which people actually worship the Fuhrer. Others said, no, the Antichrist is Hirohito, because the Japanese who bombed Pearl Harbor worshiped the emperor. To them, uh, he is divine. Uh, During those days in revival meetings, there'd be huge charts put on the wall, and the preacher's interpretation of Daniel and Revelation was all a part of the great and glorious sermon to which we were exposed at those times. Now, what am I, as a slave of Jesus Christ, supposed to do do about all this? (laughs) Uh, How much attention should I give to these matters? Well, frankly, my response is just ignore it all. Sometimes, of course, I do curiously, I have to admit, curiously dip into these venues. They do somewhat intrigue me. But you know, the tabloid curiosity about the future really doesn't merit any of my time and energy. In my opinion, these are distractions which would call me away from the purpose God has for my being in the world. My priorities get out of bed every morning, prayerfully seek God's guidance for the day and where possible to seek to know his will and do that. What I believe about the end times isn't going to change a thing. He's going to do it his way in his time. And my job is to be an obedient slave of Jesus as long as he has my feet walking upon the earth. Now, with all that said, let me insert a caveat. I frankly do find that reading some of these prophetic and eschatological scripture is of spiritual benefit. I really can't read these scriptures without finding them to be a lens through which I look at the world and the culture in which I'm living and even a lens through which I look at my own life, and usually this lens then becomes a mirror, because in it I find so many things that are addressing my own human condition. One of these is in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Now, of course, this is in a context that describes a time of tribulation in which many believers will be slain. It is in the context in which it talks about the time of many false prophets going forth to deceive many. You know, both those things are happening today, aren't they? All over the world, believers are being slain. And today, we have false prophets from Oprah all the way to some strange folks in churches. Frankly, as far as that's concerned, I wonder how could the false prophecies get much worse. But it is in that context that Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased. Now, the NAS says the love of most. The Greek literally says many, and most, I think, 
is an NAS exaggeration, but the love of many will grow cold. You know, that's an intriguing statement, isn't it? It, 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 it raises the question, how does lawlessness cause love to grow cold? And as I thought about it, there are other questions that quickly came to mind. What is lawlessness? What is the cause of lawlessness? What are its consequences? This morning, that's what I want to bring before us as we ponder together those questions. What is lawlessness? The Greek word for law is nomos. This word is anomia, which means absence of law. It describes a condition of the mind or a condition of a society in which an individual individual is accountable to no one and subject to nothing. As I think about that, I'm reminded of the book of Judges that says that after the Israelites entered the promised land, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no law, there was no enforcement, no one was accountable to anyone, so every person did whatever he wanted to do, whatever he was big enough to do, really, in that kind of a situation. Lawlessness is the highest exaltation of self. Now, many of us in this room are old enough to remember a time three decades ago in which the motto was, if it feels good, do it. (laughs) If it feels good, do it. As I thought about that, I began to remember the song written by Chris Christopherson and recorded by Sammy Smith, Help Me Make It Through the Night. Beautiful, beautiful song. I've heard it, and you have too probably performed by symphonies. When you study the composition of that song, you see how beautifully the lyrics fit the melody. And really, as you step back and read it just as poetry, one has to be impressed with the skill But listen to the message. Take the ribbon from my hair. Shake it loose and let it fall. Laying soft across your skin like a shadow on the wall. Come and lay down by my side till the other morning light. All I am taking is your time. Help me make it through the night. I don't care. What's right or wrong, and I won't try to understand. Let the devil take tomorrow, tonight. I need a friend. Yesterday is dead and gone, and tomorrow's out of sight. Oh, it's sad to be alone. Help me make it through the night. Now, one can look at the lyrics of that song and say, Here is a very immoral woman. But you know, as I read the lyrics, and especially as I notice how the lyrics are paired with a plaintive melody, I hear something different. I hear a woman who has a conscience. 
I hear a woman who is lonely and has a deep emotional need. And there is a struggle in her between what she knows is right and yet the deep needs of her ego and her emotion. And as she struggles, her emotional needs trump the will of God. And she behaves lawlessly. You know, as I thought about that, I had to think about myself. (laughs) How many times in my life have I been in a situation in which my ego, my desire for survival, at times my pride, has sought to move me one direction? And yet I know the will of God says, this is the direction. Tragically, this morning I have to stand before you and confess that at times I have been no different than the woman in this song. My pride, my needs have trumped over the will of God, and I have been lawless. Friday or Saturday, I'm not sure which, I was driving down Lewis, meditating upon lawlessness, and it was interesting how the Lord, while I was driving, and this is dangerous, but it still happened, (laughs) began to bring to my mind scenes from my past, things I had forgotten. And I began to recall times when I'd spoken words that had hurt someone. Times when I was disrespectful toward my father. Even deeds that I had done that were not manifesting the person of Jesus. And the thought lay heavily upon me. Jim, you don't deserve to go to God's heaven. And then this thought, but you will. (laughs) Because of what we celebrated this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Now I know this morning I'm not saying anything about myself that is not true of everybody in this room. We have all faced that time where here is God's will and here are the things that are driving me. And sad to say our ego needs, our emotional needs... Our pride has trumped God's will, and we have been lawless. But praise God, his grace. (laughs) Aren't we thankful for his wonderful grace? Now, you know, sometimes, I I met a man one time, and uh, we were talking about TCF and the different preachers. Now, let's see, who are you? Oh, yeah, you're the one that quotes poetry. (laughs) Well... I can't help it, especially song lyrics. And someone might comment, why do you always quote songs from the past? Why don't you quote any new songs? (laughs) Well, I don't listen to new songs. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I was in a garage uh, two, three weeks ago, and I wasn't paying attention. There was a radio playing in the background, and suddenly I thought, Did I really hear what that song said? And then I began to concentrate. I was appalled. (laughs) 
Now, Ma Rainey used to sing songs that were kind of suggestive, but there was nothing suggestive in this one. It was so explicit, I was amazed that something like that could be broadcast on the airwaves. So this morning, if I chose to use that song to illustrate something and quoted the lyrics, you'd run me out. So I do not use new songs. (laughs) But you know, really, lawlessness means, at the bottom line, a truly lawless person says, no one will tell me no. No one will tell me yes. And those who do so, who have some kind of authority to enforce it, I will find a way to get around that authority because no one tells me what to do. My heart aches as I see that attitude in the world so much today. Sad to say, even especially, I would say, among so many of our young people and our young adults. We old ones know how to hide it better. Let me just review a few verses in the New Testament that speak of lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now the context here is Jesus talking about the judgment day. And he said, not everyone will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who sent me. And some will say in that day, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And they began to list all the great deeds they had done in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Think about that. These people actually did miracles. (laughs) Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. In the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul describes the situation in the church while he was in jail. (laughs) And he said, because I'm in prison and I'm not able to get out and preach, there are others now who have been emboldened by this and they're trying to fulfill my role in their preaching. But he said there are others, others who are envious of the things that were happening as a result of my preaching. And so now that I'm in jail and can't preach anymore, they out of envy are very fervent, saying, look at us, we're as good as Paul. The motive for their preaching was not the love of Jesus, nor the will of God, nor concern for the lost. But it was their pride. Someday Jesus will say to those whom Paul so described, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That's a sobering thing to think about, isn't it? Are we doing the will of God? Or are we doing our own thing? (laughs) A sobering thought. Matthew 13, 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. There will come a time when God will purge his church. We don't dare try. We may be pulling up some wheat with the tares, but God will do it. Matthew twenty three twenty eight. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men. 
but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Mm -mm. How many people have on the righteous robes of clergy? (laughs) How many people on Sunday morning look so good? But God says, you're a hypocrite. Your heart is lawless. Romans 6.19 I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. (laughs) That's the way it goes, isn't it? Once the disease of lawlessness begins to infect an individual, begins to infect a family, begins to infect a religion, begins to infect a culture like a virulent disease for which there is no vaccination other than the blood of Jesus. It's going to spread and things will get worse and worse. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, we often think of that in terms of marriage, and that certainly is an appropriate place to apply this. But it's much broader than that. We can find ourselves bound with lawless people in such a way that we get taken down. I have a dear friend right now who has a business in Tulsa, his partnership has been with two other men. One of them has proven to be a lawless man. All kinds of lawsuits are taking place right now. And this man who is so ethical as accountant says, you're causing problems by reporting all of these things. You're so ethical. (laughs) This very ethical man right now is paying the price of being bound together with a lawless partner. Hebrews 1 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. What a what a glorious praise from the Lord. First John 3 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That one's so obvious. Now, here are a couple of verses that catch our attention, and from time to time, I've had people approach me with, uh, how do you understand these verses? matter of fact, I had one brother uh, uh, who had written a tract about these two verses, and he had said, well, in, in these passages, the verbs, the Greek verbs are deponent, and that means so and so. He totally, he had no idea what deponent verbs are, and he got it all wrong, but that's beside the point. Second, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. None of us can really explain that verse. (laughs) 
It's interesting with Nostradamus. People say we read these mysterious verses and we don't understand them. But after something happens, we can look back and say, oh, yes. (laughs) But, you know, that's the way it is with most prophecies that God has given as well, isn't it? We think we understand them, but after it's happened, we can look back. We can understand the prophecies of Isaiah relating to Jesus. No one could fully understand that before our Lord came. But this picture is given that the lawlessness of society will grow and will grow and will grow. And there will come a time where there will actually be an individual who is a personification of lawlessness. Who will rise up in the world and will be accepted by a lawless society because he so fits what culture has already become. And that's all I can say about those verses. But sobering to think about, isn't it? What causes lawlessness? Ultimately, lawlessness is a symptom of the absence of the fear of God. Remember when Abraham settled in Gerar? And he looked at his wife, Sarah, and he said, you know, they may kill me so they can have you. (laughs) So let's decide together, we'll just tell everybody you're my sister. That was only a half lie because they were half brother and sister. They had the same father but different mothers, but also were husband and wife. We don't do that today because now the law of Moses and others things prohibit it. But at that point, it was not. And so when they came into the land of Gerar, Abimelech the king saw this woman. Ah, She's his sister. He took her and put her in his harem. Boy, did he have a dream that night. (laughs) Night in a dream, God appeared to him and said, You are a dead man. Because you took this woman who is, and the Hebrew says, the wife of a husband. Well, that scared the daylights out of him. (laughs) Abraham, why did you do this? Here's Abraham's explanation, Genesis 20, 11. Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place. (laughs) And they will kill me because of my wife. No fear of God. Of course, you have to say Abraham didn't have full fear of God either because he was guilty of deception. (laughs) Later he got the point. You remember later, years later, God had him take your son, your son Isaac, your only son, take him upon the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And you remember Abraham took the son and laid him on the altar and had the wood and raised the knife And an angel said, stop. (laughs) And then here's what the angel said. Genesis 22, 12. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Years later, he was truly a God-fearing man. (laughs) but not when he and Sarah were lying in Gerar. When Moses 
had been told by God that his death was imminent and that it was time for him to ascend the mountain and die only with God as the witness, he gathered all the people of Israel together and delivered his very, very lengthy valedictory address. That's the book of Deuteronomy. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, you're reading Moses' valedictory address. Deuteronomy 6.2, So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. He was explaining why he was having this meeting. And if you take the time to read through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find that six times in this address, after a pause, six times Moses declares that the reason he is doing this is so the people will have the fear of God, and he is stating that the primary quality for a people or for an individual be acceptable unto the Lord is the fear of the Lord. After Moses had died and Joshua led the people across the Jordan River, he had them set up a monument of stones. And he said in Joshua 4.24 that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Five times in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, we find this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In one place it says the beginning of wisdom. The theme of the fear of the Lord just occurs over and over and over again in Scripture. And Solomon A very appropriate conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes wrote the conclusion. You remember he had thought about all things, this great philosopher. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Now sometimes in discussion with people, I hear individuals say the fear of God is not appropriate for anyone living under the new covenant. And they quote 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear, perfect love casts out fear. But if you read the context, what they're saying just isn't exactly true. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear of love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I don't fear the judgment, do you? (laughs) But I still live in awe of God. Awesome reverence. The Greek word phobos, which means fear. We can translate fear or reverence, but it's all the same, you see. 
this mighty being before whom Isaiah shuddered when he saw the revelation recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. If fear has no place in the new covenant, then we're going to have to get a big, big rubber eraser and work hard on some passages in the New Testament. Here are some. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. We are made manifest to God, and so on. The motivation for trying to save the lost. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. <laughs> Honor the king. That's pretty straight, isn't it? Revelation 14.7 Fear God. Give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. You really have to get out scissors or an eraser or something and get rid of a whole bunch of the New Testament if the fear of God is inappropriate under the New Covenant. Well, what does lawlessness resulting from the fear of God, why does that cause love to grow cold? Well, frankly, first and foremost, it causes love to grow cold toward God. Matthew 10, 28. Now think about, think about this verse. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now think about that while I read the next passage from Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would dare to die. But God commends his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, if we really don't have a powerful sense that there is a judgment and there is a hell, if one doesn't have a strong sense of God's divine holiness and of my horribly abject sinful condition, then there's really little chance that our hearts will be overflowing with gratitude toward that marvelous truth spoken of in Romans 5. One reason we're living in a day, I believe, in which love toward God is growing cold and the overwhelming gratitude is absent is because increasingly people no longer believe in hell. 
for which the blood of Jesus Christ has delivered us. You know, I, I, I just struggle at times when I read some of the articles and magazines and books that present things such as how to be a better you instead of talking about the bottom line, what it's really all about. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul launches an indictment of all humanity, both individuals and cultures. You know, as you read that list, you don't find much love for anyone's fellow human being. People are cold, avaricious, killers. Why? Paul says, I've given you the diagnosis. Now here's the disease. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me describe a situation that I have seen which clearly illustrates this truth. Gordon and I began traveling behind the Iron Curtain before the fall of communism. It was a very ordered society in any city. When you came to across uh, roads, two streets across, there would always be four policemen, one on each corner. Every place we looked, there were soldiers. You could walk down the streets with no fear because nobody dared rob you. <laughs> it was a very controlled society. After the fall of communism in August of 1991, Gordon and I were back in September of 1991, and what a totally different world. When we got off the plane, where before we were just inundated in uniforms, the only uniform we saw was some cadet not yet dry behind the ears who led us from the airplane to the airport just to show us how to get around. No police anywhere. There was absolutely no law. You could do anything you were big enough to do. It was just like the Wild West uh, in the United States in the late 1800s. And my, did we see some wonderful things there as far as freedom of preaching. There was no force to tell you couldn't preach, and hundreds were saved. But something was very, very sad in the culture. Now, it's been so long the exact figure escapes me, but what does stick in my mind is the figure of 64%. A survey was taken of high school students What is your ambition? What are your plans for the future? Now, this was a time in which the ruble had plummeted. You could get, I I forget the number, but at least 1,000, maybe 2,000 rubles for every dollar. And 64% is the figure I remember. It was a huge percentage of the young women in high school, said their lifetime ambition was to become a dollar prostitute. Astounding. 
But when they lived under communism in which the presence of God had been removed, all I am anyway is just a sack of bones. I'm just a piece of meat. (laughs) No fear of God. I tell you, it was heartbreaking. Every place we went, we were in the presence of beautiful young women, 18 to 25 probably, plying the trade. There were two Ukrainian young men, twins, who were involved with the mafia. And Gordon and I befriended them. And we actually were able to talk to them about the Lord and give them tracts. And as an act of gratitude, they sent two prostitutes to us. <laughs> that didn't fit at all. But that's the only way they knew how to think. One night after we'd been out all day in the villages and we were absolutely exhausted and we got back to the hotel... And the only thing open was a dollar bar on the top floor. So let's just go up there and get some refreshment and relax before we go to bed. Next to us was a table with four prostitutes. Do you want a girl? No, I'm so tired. All I want to do is go to bed. Which room? You know, it was just every place you were surrounded. No fear of God. No respect for self. No real love. I wonder today how many of them are still alive. How many of them are living lives of disease. One day we were, and I don't even remember where, but we were in some town, village, whatever. And we were next to the train depot, and Bob Love from Cleveland, Ohio, was with us on that trip. And as we were standing there, we saw coming toward us a little woman about this tall. She was either Mongolian or Central Asian. She had filthy black hair. Her stench preceded her as she came toward us. This side of her face was smashed in. Now, I don't mean just damaged flesh, but even the bone, horribly wounded. And she shuffled toward us and went over and sat down on the step by the train depot. Bob Love immediately ran, trying to get some food for her. Went to a policeman. Nobody would pay any attention. Some Christians finally arrived. We need to help this woman. Oh, you don't understand. That's mafia. What do you mean? They do that to people. And they take them around town and leave them different places with their cup or basket or whatever, I don't remember. People come by and put money in. At the end of the day, they come around with a van and collect all these people and take the money that has been given them during the day. No fear of God. Lawlessness. Love grown cold. I've seen it. And in subtle ways, I see it in the culture in which you and I are living today. Dear brother, dear sister, we're living in an age that is so irreverent, so disrespectful, so rude. And we're living in a casual age, and there's nothing wrong with casualness, except along with it has come a casualness 
toward God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you know, it doesn't do any good for me to stand up here today and talk about all of this and diagnose it. (laughs) Unless as a result, we all determine to not let ourselves drift down that path of irreverence. That path of fearlessness toward God. That path of lawlessness. The path that leads to loveless love. Let it not be said of any of us. Because lawlessness has increased. My love has grown cold. Father God... Help us to see ourselves as you see us. We are blind to our condition. But oh, when you do, how thankful we are for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In his name, amen.